Hey friends, this is Pop Culture Makes Me Jealous, where we analyze pop culture through the lens of race or gender, and sometimes both. I'm your host, Julia Washington, and on today's show, we are getting into the 1992, I want to say classic, Aladdin, but we'll decide <laughs> when we are done talking about it. <laughs> Aladdin first released on November 25th, 1992, which I believe was Thanksgiving weekend that year. But before we dive into our topic, let me introduce you to my guest. Aaron Vandeven is the creator of the Medium Lady community and host of Medium Lady Talks and Medium Lady Reads podcast. And if you'll recall, I was on an episode of her, so I will link it in the show notes so you can listen to her, um, to us again over there. Aaron aims to help burnt out moms and millennials recover and rediscover their identities after the pandemic. She is a hospital administrator and mom of three kids plus a dog, and she lives in Mississauga, Ontario, Canada. She has been on a lifelong mission to bake the perfect chocolate chip cookie. Welcome to the show, Aaron. Oh my gosh, thank you so much for having me. Um, We have the same favorite movie. Which is? Singing in the Rain. Gosh, darn it. Yeah, I love Singing in the Rain. I couldn't remember what I put. I have a couple, maybe a top yeah. three, but Singing in the Rain is just like my diehard. Mm -hmm. I think um, Dick Van Dyke was my first crush, followed very closely by Gene Kelly. So Gene Kelly is so my old Hollywood crush. Yeah. And I unfortunately was exposed to some of the like interviews of De that Debbie Reynolds gave mm. because mm. she's very young in that movie. Yeah, she's 19. And yeah, and he's not so young. No. <laughs> and um, kind of crushed the romance of that a little bit, some mm -hmm. of her descriptions of the scenes with him, which I'm sure you're, you're familiar with. But gosh, I love me a dream ballet. Me too. So when a dream ballet <laughs> showed up in Barbie, I was like, I'm not mad. Yeah. No, I don't have a problem with this. Keep the dream ballet. All the time. Like, so I, so they're doing a Gene Kelly biopic and I'm very mm. interested in how the tone will be because he his last wife was very 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 young and yeah. there's a ton of controversy about his you know when his health seriously declined and the kids and the estate and all this stuff so I'm, I'll be very curious to see this movie starring apparently as of right now I don't know if he's still he I, who knows what could happen in the next when they start you know to film but the star attached is Chris Evans, who was my modern day crush. He is not wow. in any longer. But when they announced it, I was like, stop, this is the Do worst. Do we see like it? <laughs> Do we see Captain America as Gene Kelly singing in the rain? I kind of oh, do, actually. I don't hate it. I don't hate it. I was excited. I was like, my current crush it. and my classic Hollywood crush? <laughs> classic like, Hollywood I'm not crush. mad. <laughs> I do kind of think that like, is he old enough to play Gene Kelly? I guess so. Like I might have yeah, also like gone for like 42 or something yeah, like that. Yeah. yeah, like a Tom Holland or something. Mm, um, mm. but maybe too much of a baby face. Yeah. Yeah, Tom Holland does have a baby face. Yeah. He's so adorable. <laughs> um, do we feel like the biopic is going to be generous or not generous in the way that some of our biopics lately have been sort of telling? one side of the story i'm thinking about elvis in particular oh that was a I, heavy eye roll I, heavy <laughs> no for the audio no for the audio julia gives a heavy eye roll i raged so hard about the elvis biopic with uh my co-host of still comfy natalie katona 
and it was just really hard it was just a lot to but sit how do we through feel about priscilla i feel like it's the same same but priscilla different. didn't come to my city oh i know and i'm I sorry. am livid so now i'm like <laughs> okay the near the next town over has it so i have to make time to see it but that's based on her memoir oh so i'm curious my book club read her memoir and so now i'm curious to like do a little compare and contrast apparently she's not a fan but then also i think it was it in toronto or venice she was like oh i give my blessing and then now she's like saying whatever anyway listen we embrace that we can change our minds yes yes right we can embrace that i'm sure that it maybe felt like a good idea and then maybe it felt like less of a good idea i don't know because i think they started it before lisa marie died so a lot has happened since lisa marie's passing so i know you know that can definitely grief can affect the way you view things absolutely but i will be curious about the gene kelly movie i don't even know here's here's what i'm gonna tell you is that like in terms of staying comfy with stay with singing singing in the rain being my favorite movie of all time Mm -hmm. i will let you preview the gene kelly biopic for me with chris evans and you can tell me if it will allow me to keep singing in the rain at my top tier as top tier movies because i know as well julia that when you look into those old classics we get a peek behind the curtain and will i see uh, breakfast at tiffany's the same way no i will not <laughs> i'm okay i'm fine but singing in the rain is another tier so i'll you you can go first and yes. tell me if i need to go after that i will happily take that uh role for you because i appreciate that i am a toxic person who will still watch it even <laughs> if we find out that he is the worst human on the planet <laughs> Oh. I mean, but he dances like an angel. It's so good. There's this series that HBO did when my son was little called Classical Baby, and they recreated it. And it was so beautiful for Classical oh Baby God. dance. And it was so good, even in animation. I was like, so we have this tradition, Aaron, where every year, well, my son's at college now, so it's broken. But the first <laughs> rain, we would watch Singing in the Rain together. Like, this is Aww. a rooted family film the now. The first rain. Yeah. Aw, mm-hmm. that's adorable. I think I gotta go watch Singing in the Rain after this. Yes, I support. Okay, so let's get into it. As I mentioned sure. before, Aladdin released in 1992, and we all know it with the famous voices of Robin Williams and Gilbert Gottfried. Mm-hmm. And then, of course, the dreamboat himself from TV sitcom that we all grew up watching full house scott wingner and so many others so let's get into the google summary because we love to to get into the google summary for those of you who are new here because google tells (laughs) us everybody googles and google basically tells us what to think aladdin is a lovable street urchin who meets princess jasmine the beautiful daughter of the sultan of agrabah while visiting her exotic palace aladdin stumbles upon a magic oil lamp that unleashes a power wisecracking larger than life genie as aladdin and the genie start to become friends they must soon embark on a dangerous mission to stop the evil sorcerer jafar from overthrowing young jasmine's kingdom Hmm. Google hasn't seen the movie. How uh, dare you? Mm-hmm. There's it, multiple errors in this summary. Yes, yes there uh, are. Mm-hmm. Mm-hmm. I am baffled. 
I'm not surprised. Oh, you're not. Okay. Because they're either spot on where you're just like, holy buckets, Google, good job. Or they're like, <laughs> or it's like this where you're just like, no, I don't, I don't know what you're talking about. Because if oh. I had no idea about Aladdin, I would not know that this is wrong. See, if they hadn't said Princess Jasmine and Jafar, I would have assumed that they're doing some kind of like AI mix up of both the Disney plot line in addition to the um arabian nights version of it right but because of the use of princess jasmine and jafar i just think this is like ai kind of went down the wrong rabbit hole it Mm. it did not use the right source to write this because i mean obviously the lamp is not found at jasmine's exotic palace Mm -mm. and the dangerous thing is going to find the lamp that's like dangerous thing number one it's like act one of the movie Mm mm-hmm and overthrowing young Jasmine's kingdom. I mean, I wish young Jasmine had a kingdom. I'm sure we're going to get into it. We will. Mm-hmm. Jasmine only wishes she had a kingdom. <laughs> she sure does. She sure does. So at the time of its release, Roger Ebert had this to say, the bottom line is that Aladdin is good, but not great with the exception of the Robin Williams sequences, which have a life and energy all their own. So all and the New York Times 1992 review of this movie, Janet Maslin contributed this. If the makers of Aladdin had their own magic lamp, it's easy to guess what they might wish for. Another classic that crosses generational lines as successfully as Beauty and the Beast did and moves as seamlessly from start to finish. Aladdin is not quite that, but it comes as close as may have been possible without a genie's help. So overall, the reviews were heavy on Robin Williams is brilliant. The 1992 reviews, I didn't want to bring in anything current when they were comparing to the remake. Mm-hmm. So, so overwhelmingly the reviews are Robin Williams is brilliant. He's amazing. We are so lucky. He's a gem and less praise on the movie itself. It was like, essentially the tone was like Robin Williams saved this movie. <laughs> so I wonder if contextually that we've got a little bit of Disney's second coming Mm. we've had the little mermaid Mm -hmm. we've had beauty and the beast we get Aladdin and we're like is the is the third in the trilogy as good yeah are we are we having a return of the Jedi situation here Mm. right where Mm -hmm. it's like it's just is it recycling on what's really working in the second coming? And I think that the reason people lean so heavily into the Robin Williams piece is that from what I read, it really was uncommon to have someone as famous as Robin Williams do the voice of a cartoon in a, in a major motion picture. So this was like a new thing. And I think that I wonder if the novelty of that paired with the, um, the like been there done that of the third animated classic whatever you want to call it that that pulled critics towards paying attention to this new thing of having a movie star do the voice of 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 the genie or of any character I know Gilbert Godfrey of course was famous at his time and Scott Wigner but they were by no means like the movie actor that Robin Williams was at right. the time. Like, it was a big deal for them to get him. Right. And certainly Beauty and the Beast, like who who can who can name, except for Julia Washington, <laughs> the voices in Beauty and the Beast, 
who can name except now we know you know but but we didn't at the time these were not famous people these were voice actors doing the voice of the little mermaid the voice of ursula you know like and now here we get robin williams you could find robin williams on the you know you could pick him out of a lineup all of these other voice actors nobody knew what they looked like or sound like they were not famous for doing anything other than creating the voice of, of these beloved characters. Right. And that's a really good point because I think it's easy for us to forget, especially like the newer generation, because it's such a big deal yeah. to like get somebody like it's, you know, animated features now are basically voiced all by major celebrities. Exactly. And when we were kids, that just wasn't the case. Like I, let's get into the first time we saw Aladdin and what was the experience like? Cause I was just getting ready to tell you that, but I'm going to let you go first. Cause you're the guest. So I wish I could remember. I want to believe that I saw Aladdin in the theater, but I grew up in a small town in Ontario and I'm the oldest of five kids. Wow. And I didn't know that. Yeah. I'm the oldest of, I give up big sister energy all, <laughs> all day long. Right. Um, that's a big part of my podcast in and of itself. So I want to believe we saw it in the theaters, but I don't remember it specifically, the event. Mm-hmm. Um, however, we did ha- not grow up with cable TV. Mm-hmm. What we did grow up with was a very comprehensive Disney movie library on VHS. And yes. I know that I loved the crap out of that Aladdin VHS. And I, I could picture that VHS cover, you know, the like sort of like squishy it's literally Plasticky. the only VHS I still have, Aaron. <laughs> and the I second thing when I was moving. Oh, that's too nostalgic to get rid of. I know. But I also was obsessed with the music. I had the cassette tape. I could like rewind and play that thing with like a second sense. So yeah. not only the movie experience of watching it, rewatching it, watching it again, like I rewatched it for this podcast and I, I know the whole thing by heart. I still do at the age of 40, know the whole, this whole movie by heart and the music as well, the music as well. So that's, that's kind of the the thing I could drudge up the best I could do in yeah. terms of, of my memory back in 1992. No, I love that. Cause when I was rewatching it for our chat today, I, again, I was like, oh shit. I know every single yeah. song still like, why is this still every little aside, into my mm-hmm. all of the like stand up that the genie does in the cave. I yes. was like, oh my gosh, I can make all of these pop culture references now. Yes, And I never could when I was, you know, nine years old. So, um, it was, it's great. Right. Yeah. Great. When I, did you first watch it? We saw it in theater and because it was Thanksgiving weekend, I'm assuming I'm going to confirm in my outro, um, because <laughs> it was in November, we probably went as a family because my mom mm-hmm. and dad probably were like, oh, this will be great for everybody because, yeah. you know, I'm five and seven years younger than my siblings. So that's probably what they were thinking. I don't remember specifically being in the theater, but I remember the aftermath. We had we had him on CDs because my dad was a CD guy um, before like everybody. But oh, that's the California thing. Eh? Yeah, we had we had the soundtrack <laughs> on CD, and then I remember specifically that year for Christmas we went back to Ohio to visit 
and have a huge Italian family Christmas. And I remember being in the mall in Cleveland with my family and there was a genie t-shirt in the Disney store. And, you know, kids today don't understand the Disney store was a true novelty. It wasn't as packed as it is now with stuff. It was like, truly like you walked in and you were just like treasures treasures. and it wasn't just like junk to have junk at least that's how I remember it me too and my I forget which uncle it was was like you can pick one thing I will buy you one thing (laughs) and being eight years old you're just like no but I'm in a store where I want everything like that's hard one of everything yes I picked (laughs) this shirt that had all the different genies on it so it was like all the different versions of genie in the movie was on the shirt I don't even know how long I had that thing I definitely I'm pretty confident my mom just threw it away one day because she was like this is done you're 25 why do you still have this like no core fashion memories Core it was memories. the best. It was the best thing ever. And then, Aww. of course, we had it on, like I said, we had it on VHS and <clears throat> like you listen to the soundtrack on repeat mm-hmm. to the point where, again, watching it today, it was like, I can't believe this is all still in my head. Like, mm-hmm. I deleted everything about religion I grew up with <laughs> and I still have Aladdin just lodged in there. <laughs> well, you know, I mean, we all have choices to make. Mm, mm-hmm. and we have to live with we have to live with them yes this is true so talk to me a little bit about what it was like watching it as an adult because did you continuously mm-hmm. watch it or did you take a huge gap of time and rewatch it I know you said you rewatched it for for our chat today but like watching it through adult eyes now as a parent yeah so I definitely think that when we hopped on the Disney plus train we watched it as a family my son, so I have three boys, 10, eight, and four. They're not great at watching movies. I'll be honest with you. They're part of the YouTube generation. You know, they can watch Mr. Beast for an hour, but they cannot really hang with a major motion picture. So um, I believe they watched it in parts. And I think even the speed of some of the storytelling, I think they find a little bit slow, to be honest with you. Interesting. Yeah. Yeah. And I think that they definitely are attracted to the things that I remember about loving the movie. And I still really loved on rewatch. Um, I was lucky. I don't know if luck is the word, but I was flat out sick this week and actually took time off of work to just recover. So with my sickies, I curled up on the couch and watched Aladdin all by myself. My kids Aww. were at school. My husband was at work. My dog and I curled up on the couch. We watched Aladdin. And I got to say, like, do they make one hour and 34 minute movies anymore? No. And it is a biggest pet peeve. Again, to bring uh, bring up Natalie Katona, my co-host of Still Comfy. We literally just get to the point where I'm just like, it's not necessary. We had a whole 20 minute conversation about <laughs> why I will not see Oppenheimer Oh, (laughs) because it's three hours and I just find that offensive. (laughs) I mean, I was like, what am I in for here? Because I was a little bit sleepy. I probably had some medicine and I thought, oh, one hour and I can hang with one hour and 34 minutes of this. And I, I, I really like, I took note of the fact that it was one hour and 34 minutes because I also thought like, oh, my kids, they can't, they, you know, movies are long. And I was like, but one hour, 34 minutes, that's pretty good. Mm -hmm. So I, um, 
I loved watching it as an adult. Now, there are some things that jump out at you, and I'm sure we're going to get into them, but I feel like the bones of this story hold up. It holds up as as a children's, Mm -hmm. as a piece of children's entertainment, I think. Mm -hmm. Mm Mm-hmm. I think it's got the good guy. It's got the bad guy. It's got the really lovable sidekicks. It's got the music and it's over in an hour and a half. Mm-hmm. And it's relatively uncomplicated storytelling. That's a great point because again, my friend and I were talking about um, movies today and just this whole, she had a an experience going to see the, the newest Marvels movie, the Marvels. And, you know, there were children who were restless in it and mm-hmm. it is. So then that sent us down a conversation of like, yeah, you know, you do you with your kids, it's your call, but a PG 13 movie typically means it's going to be a little bit more complex in, mm-hmm. in, in structure in storytelling in what we're in for. And an eight-year-old's not going to necessarily want to sit through the parts where they are getting into the complex stuff. Like they're going to want right. the action. They're going to want the quick movements. So, you know, now your kid's disruptive. So it's hard because it's like, are there even movies anymore where we don't have a complex situation where you have to be paying attention, where you really do need to be having, where you do need to have well-developed critical thinking skills to stick with it. And like what movies are coming out for, I'm out of the kid's world, right? Like my kid is grown. I don't, somebody was like, do you want to go see trolls? And I was like, I have no desire. No, <laughs> like, that is not I, a vibe I'm into now. <laughs> like, Yeah. I mean, I think that there are some movies that really deviate from just the, the purest form of storytelling mm-hmm. in order to mass produce. Yeah. Uh, character, I guess, mass produce like something consumable and capitalistic. Mm-hmm. I think, and not to throw shade, but I may as well. Um, <laughs> the new Ninja Turtles movie mm-hmm. has tremendous animation, but is really a vehicle for consumerism and and this the art of storytelling is really kind of lost in that movie versus something like the Super Mario movie which in my opinion really leans into really good storytelling yeah and does so with the vehicle of the Super Mario franchise right so yeah. i do think that i'm sure we had that when we were growing up like there there were you know trash movies and like there was a whole uh barbie movie franchise animated barbie movie franchise Mm -hmm, you know mm -hmm. that we that we tolerated and there was you know all kinds of stuff so so i don't really necessarily think that it's changed that much i just think that there's a lot more for kids to consume than there ever was in the 90s oh for sure you probably had aladdin i didn't check but i i should have checked what other animated kids movies released in the theaters in 92 no idea but there's probably maybe a couple other competi- things for competition. The rest of the stuff would have been on like your Saturday morning cartoons right? or your after school lineup. Now, well, like mm-hmm. this stuff has to compete against in my kid's mind palace against uh, Ryan's world, Blippi, Mr. Beast, mm. Dude Perfect, these huge machines of content that are just like, salivating for their attention span there's way more claim on the economy of kids attention than there was when we were growing up 
Yeah. If you'll recall, Disney only released one animated feature a year. Yeah. Like we had Little Mermaid, then there was Beauty and the Beast, then there was Aladdin, then Lion King. That's right. Oh, I can't remember if Pocahontas. Pocahontas was Pocahontas next. Okay. I was like, oh, no, yeah. Um, and it wasn't like a big thing. And I remember Aladdin being well, I remember Beauty and the Beast was a big deal because the the ballroom animation dancing was scene, so spectacular. And the ballroom dancing scene was computer animated. So like That's they right. really had this huge conversation, like, look at how innovative this is, but a lot of it's still hand drawn. And in Aladdin, you see a lot of it is still hand drawn. That's but right. you can also tell now what is computer animated, which I, I clearly didn't catch that. 30 years ago which is fine because why would i, I didn't have? notice it i didn't notice it when yeah and the only reason why i noticed it now is because of the amount i pay attention to vfx stuff because mm. i do kind of get a little cranky and it's bad <laughs> <laughs> i mean as we all should um but you know there but there were a handful of scenes where it's like oh that's clearly hand drawn like now you can tell the difference big time so of course you know they were giving us a movie a year because it takes forever to do yeah. scene by scene whereas i mean v vfx is hard it is a lot of work but it is i think easier to turn out animated stuff now like to your point there's so much out there that kids have are, that are competing for children's attention versus when we were kids and then all the looney Tunes stuff on saturday was recycled from when our parents were kids <laughs> oh my gosh yeah my kids will still watch that though um I, that's interesting the comment you make about animation and how much the animation evolved from the little mermaid to beauty and the beast to aladdin and we can bring lion king in mm -hmm. because if you think about the scale of scenes in the little mermaid the biggest scale scene I think of is when Ursula dies at the end. Mm -hmm. Spoiler alert. Um, that's the biggest scale that I can remember. Then we go to Beauty and the Beast. The biggest scale I think of is the ballroom scene or the end when yeah. Gaston dies. Yeah. Which is probably still hand-drawn, to be honest with you. Like, Gaston dying is the same as the witch dying in Snow White. It's the right. same animation technique. And then the third iteration, if you think about scale in Aladdin, there's a ton of scale in aladdin there's the lion the, the tiger head yeah, cave. The, what do you call that the cave of wonders cave of wonders yeah. there's the cave of wonders there's the sultan's palace itself is huge mm -hmm. there's the i can show you the world scene the, yeah the whole, new, whole world. new world mm -hmm. and then there's the end when it really kind of like ratchets up and Jafar becomes like this huge megalomaniac. Yeah. So there's a lot of scale. And then if you think about the Lion King, that whole movie is scale. Yes. That whole movie is like huge landscapes, the savanna, brilliant, beautiful, like countryside landscape animals. So you could really see the animators playing and pushing the envelope more and more and more. And so if the critics are saying like, yeah, some of the storyline is simple or the storyline mm -hmm. trades off on what was driving the plot in these other movies or the performances you know or the writing I think that if we think about these as animated features what they're doing is pushing the envelope movie after movie after movie and they're only doing that one year at a time knowing as well that these movies take probably three to five years to make so right. we're conceptualizing these things probably in like 85 86 
Yeah. And then too, as technology changes, then you have to consider how you have to change the film and what you're doing with, you know, the structure of it. I think in Roger Ebert's review, he even talks about like, which came first, Robin Williams dialogue or the animation, because I can't imagine like somebody trying to like keep up with Robin, you know, trying to, what, what, what have you? I forget exactly what he said. <laughs> so I have a fun, I have a fun fact about that because I wanted to watch some, and there is some old footage of Robin Williams recording for mm-hmm. the genie. But what I found out actually was that they really wanted him to take the part, and they were trying to convince him, and they were trying to convince the studio to hire him. And what they did was they took uh, his stand-up, they animated over his stand-up with the genie. So they said, I love that. Yeah, they said, this is how brilliant this guy is. This is what this character could be if you let us do this. And so they conceptualized the genie over Robin Williams' stand up. And that's how they convinced Robin Williams thought it was like the funniest thing he'd ever seen. And the studio was like, okay, we're going to do it. And then, um, because I, I would imagine he pulled in a bigger paycheck than they were probably used to oh, paying I'm their sure. voice talent. Yeah. And and so that was the beginning of the transition to celebrity voices in Disney animated movies. Dang. Oh, I kind of love that. Like, that's mm-hmm. a great, like, that's a great, we're going to bet on this pitch tactic to work. And it did. Yeah. Yeah. They're like, you have to see creatively what we can do with this, with this guy as a voice actor. And sometimes that's all, that's what you have to do. Like Mm -hmm. I, you know, it's hard when you have this prescribed system that you need to fall within to be creative. Like, even though it's a creative industry, there's still an element of restriction. If the people who are, you know, at the very top are typically business people, which business people are creative in their own way, but they're not creative in the way that an artist is right so it's like having to help sort of bridge that understanding of like what is capable I can also knowing that it was hand-drawn they were like we want to draw this guy Mm -hmm. like they must have hand-drawn that sample oh totally You've heard me mention that I am now a contributor to Jennifer Magazine, so I want to tell you a little bit about the publication. Jennifer Magazine supports a strong community of women and non-binary people who are challenging the status quo of ageism, choosing conscious consumption over status-seeking, supporting brands that align with their values of inclusion, stepping into the empowerment found in self-expression, and talking about it. If you're tired of reading publications that seem to miss the mark when it comes to coverage of women, aging, and the gender binary, publications that are rooted in internalized racism and misogyny, then Jennifer Magazine is the publication for you. The publisher of Jennifer Magazine was once told that there's concern that Jennifer Magazine misses the mark, that it's not something people are asking for. And you know what? It's hard to ask for something when you don't know that something has been missing from your life. You can read Jennifer Magazine at jennifermag.com. There you can purchase monthly issues or even join their annual subscription and receive exclusive discounts. Do you get really excited that your favorite book was adapted for screen only to watch it and feel completely let down? Are you a person who refuses to watch the screen adaptation because you know the movie God's got it wrong? 
I'm Julia Washington, host of Jelly Pops Book Club, where we read book-to-screen adaptations and compare them to their screen counterparts. We've covered books like Normal People by Sally Rooney, Water for Elephants, and Are You There, God? It's me, Margaret. We even host a live monthly book club where we have read books like The Other Black Girl, The Joy Luck Club, and The Sun is Also a Star. Sometimes we even discuss books we wish would be adapted, offer suggestions on what needs to stay, and who should be cast. So if you're someone who thinks, I can't believe they did this to this book or screams at a screen about the changes that make no sense at all then this might be the show for you you can find jelly pops book club on apple podcasts spotify or visit our website popculturemakesmejealous.com I wonder, I'm assuming you streamed it on Disney Plus. Mm -hmm. Did you see the disclaimer at the beginning? No, I missed it because I was getting situated with my dog. So I'm glad you caught it. So there's a new disclaimer. I've never seen this before. It says, and I've screen captured it because I thought it was really interesting. This program includes negative depictions and or mistreatment of people or cultures. These stereotypes were wrong then, and they are wrong now. Rather than remove this content, we want to acknowledge its harmful impact, learn from it, and spark conversation to create a more inclusive future together. Mm. Disney is committed to creating stories with inspirational and aspirational themes that reflect the rich diversity of the human experience around the globe. To learn more about how stories have impacted society, visit www.disney, blah, blah, blah. And it, it's up there for about 15 seconds. I wasn't sure if you caught it and I had to do a little bit of a deep dive because I thought, I don't think I noticed that I was probably getting my kids situated and somebody had to pee and whatever, whatever. This was added in 2020 to four movies, Aladdin, Dumbo, Peter Pan and the Aristocats. And I'm curious, like, do we think this is enough? Do we think this is enough mm. given, you know, some of the criticisms of Aladdin today? Like, I feel it holds up as a piece of children's entertainment, but does it hold up as a cultural classic? That's a good segue into our next uh, segment because I want to go back to Roger Ebert's review that we quoted earlier. He also includes in that review, quote, one distraction during the film was its odd use of ethnic stereotypes. Most of the Arab characters have exaggerated facial characteristics, hooked noses, glowering, glowering brows, thick lips, but Aladdin and the princess look like a white American teenagers. Wouldn't it be mm -hmm. reasonable that if all the characters in the movie come from the same genetic stock, they should resemble each other, one another, end quote. But additionally, I'm going to add to that. Um, the opening song has yeah. some language in it where you're just like, what? That's not, that's a little. Arabian Nights. Yeah. They changed it. Did you notice that? In the in this version on Disney Plus? I think so. They've changed it. So they've changed the line from um because there was, there was still a, a line about lines. cutting off your hands. So there's a line where they cut off your hand if they don't if they don't like your face. Yes, that one and was in the version line, I saw today. It's barbaric, but hey, it's home. 
the barbaric line is still in there but yeah. it's um it's flat and immense and the heat is intense they've they've taken out that cut off your hand line i'm pretty oh, sure interesting i'm pretty I sure they if... changed it cut I off mean... your ear i'm sorry not cut off your hand cut off Either... your ear if they don't like your face it's barbaric but hey it's home either way well <laughs> i mean yeah but you're probably right but because i've seen it and have it memorized so many times my brain probably I know, just you heard imposed. it anyway yeah. yeah yeah i believe that yeah so i think for 1992 this is a pretty decent observation for mr ebert considering how often he is a misogynist in his reviews i'm surprised <laughs> he called somebody out for you know ethnic um misrepresentation and if you're on social media um, a lot specifically TikTok. there are plenty of videos about the negative re representation of arab people and the casting of mostly white actors when it comes to this mm -hmm. film so mm -hmm. i think it's a really good conversation to move into now and regarding disney's disclaimer i don't know if it's enough but i did mm. have a conversation with somebody recently specifically about loki season two and just oh. how much i enjoyed loki season one and how quietly they announced in season one in I think it's episode it's the train episode where Loki basically acknowledges that he's bisexual but it's so subtle I literally missed it and I only realized that what was what was happening when I was doing research for a Loki episode and read an interview with the director who was like this is the way we were allowed to handle it and I'm very proud of the way we were able to do it but it was very mm. clear that she was working within the confines of what she was given without saying like, hey, Disney shackled my feet and I could only do so much. So I feel like Disney is very, very, very strategic and yeah. how and how much they're willing to do when it comes to like, hey, we did some shitty things like remember Song of the South? We're sorry. Mm -hmm. <laughs> like, mm -hmm. But still, it, I don't know if a disclaimer is enough because you said 15 seconds when I was producing videos that had a lot of text on the screen. The rule of thumb was by our main video editor you need to leave it on the screen, the screen for as long as you can read it and then add five seconds. I don't know if that's industry mm. standard. I don't know if other studios, other, you know, but that was our standard for our media videos that we put out. What are your thoughts for I mean, if it's enough or just in general? Here's the thing is it's like, you know, I, I certainly don't want to be a Disney apologist. Like I, I definitely think that one of the benefits of being a millennial is like being able to be squarely in the camp of no better, do better mm -hmm. and having an opportunity to actively reflect on our experiences as children and then pivot to make better decisions. Like, I think that we're just like really strongly empowered to do that by both our collective experiences and using that collective experience to support one another, to make better decisions. I think that, you know, we have to reconcile that this is, this is a criticism again about, um, content for children. And so, mm -hmm. you know, I think like reconciling that children are exposed to these stereotypes, there's, there's color coding, there's covert racism, there's maybe even overt racism to signify yeah. good people and bad people. Good people look like Aladdin and Jasmine, bad people look like Jafar and, you know, covertly or otherwise sending different messages to different groups of children based on race or heritage or culture 
it's just not okay. Like it's othering even like from the very mm-hmm. opening scene, right? Mm-hmm. You're, you're othering and maybe it's not Jafar, but maybe it's the, the guards, right? Yeah. The- and even if you think about the Sultan, the Sultan is like, looks like Santa Claus. So the Sultan mm-hmm. is like the richest person. The poorest people are wearing hijab and have features. There's a woman who has like very pronounced, like, um, pigment hyperpigmentation under her eyes like there's all of these choices that the animators made now I don't I don't really agree with Roger Ebert he's saying like they all come from the same culture shouldn't they all look the same right no, I don't really think that that's what you that's, mean exactly Raj, well yeah but and that's a prejudice in itself too right for like, sure mm-hmm. for sure but I think his point is that um you know the the kids who look like Aladdin can say I look like the good guy right kids who don't look like Aladdin can say I don't look like the good guy and and that is a problem and that's a problem and for me as a parent do I feel like it's enough um listen I don't need Disney to do my parenting for me how about I just say it that way I'm really comfortable to say to my kids like what do you think about that here's what I think about it uh is it good or bad is it something we want to watch or not want to watch um, and allow my kids to think about the friends that they have, the way that they're growing up in the world, the positions that they have that benefit them. Um, I'm raising three white, you know, upper middle class kids, boys. Mm-hmm. And, you know, I mean, I want them to break down the barriers of the food chain as much as anybody else. I want them to be active participants in, you know, flattening the patriarchy, but I have to be the active parent. It's not going to be Disney putting up a 15 minute, uh, well-worded. I mean, I also think it's like probably grade seven reading level, right? Yeah. Yeah. Beckett is four. He can't read at all. So it's not benefit. It's not there for Beckett. Right. Right. Um, so I don't know, like, is it enough? It, it's, it's what it's, it's maybe actually a little bit more than I would expect from Disney. Mm-hmm, mm-hmm. And I think it's probably as important in Aladdin as it is in other movies where there are overtly racist characters, yeah. like the Dumbo, the Dumbo references, these crows who are referencing, um, minstrel, like, uh, yeah. minstrel actors, the Aristocats has a very heavily, um, I think it's um it's the cat Asian it's the, stereotype yeah, yeah. It's this, mm-hmm. and then um Peter Pan I mean like has literally a song called what makes the red man red right which is overtly racist like mm-hmm. that to me in my mind maybe is probably a piece of content I wouldn't show to my kids because I just like you know that's yeah, my decision you, as a mom and, yeah and how do you have that conversation about something that blatant right like I mean you it's easy to have a conversation about something that's blatant but yeah it's harder about the sneaky stuff it is hard about the sneaky stuff but I remember having a conversation with a friend in when I was a teenager and I and I asked and we were having this chat about like I said I don't understand this idea because you know Jesus loves all the little children of the world red and yellow black and white they are precious <laughs> in his sight yeah and no, we I'm don't like, sing that anymore. No. And I'm like, but I don't understand. I mean, I, because we have, you know, n- n- we, ha- we were under the impression that we had native blood in our family that has since been debunked because of DNA testing. <laughs> so I understood the reference to, you know, air quote red, but the yellow threw me. And then someone was like, oh, it's Asian people just like yeah. passive, like very. And then I was like, no, but I don't understand that. And mm-hmm. then I had a friend say to me, 
one day when we were at church, she leaned in and whispered and she was like, see how there's like a little bit of like a yellow pigment to their skin. And I was like, no, I don't. I don't. I still don't understand. But also coming from the place of being a mixed person, being told I don't look like my siblings, being even though we all look exactly the same, like our face, like we all have the same face. People can't see it because we are toned differently. We have different Mm -hmm. hair hair color, eye color, all the things. So for me, I'm just like, I don't understand. I don't understand it. I don't get it. And so when people try to explain it, it's kind of hilarious because then it's like the breakdown of like maybe they don't understand it either but now it's the accepted truth right now it's like how do we navigate that well it's it's a way of simplifying diversity mm -hmm. that actually is quite subversive because Mm -hmm. I think that if you think you can see and categorize people by something as simple as color. Yeah. Who's red, who's yellow, who's black, who's white. And then you continue to do that without questioning that that's not okay. Mm-hmm. Is then you are allowed to categorize the world as to who's other and who is, who belongs to your in-group. Yeah. And I, and I do think that, you know, there are a lot of subversive ways in Disney art or Disney, you know, movies where there is othering because they're so tied into the good versus evil right. narrative that somebody does have to be good and somebody does have to be evil and the evil is an other, you know, Disney is not out here, at least in the nineties, they weren't out there trying to peddle complex narratives and stories unfortunately you know like we didn't get our cocos or our encantos or our brunos until later you know where you're learning about like what is your inner life and your inner narrative telling you about who you are as a person how did the trauma of your grandmother and your mother and your Mm -hmm. siblings affect you as an individual and the talents that you bring into the world you know what do you know about death and aging and life and and beauty and joy and like these are wonderful, beautiful things. That's the content I want to show to my kids. Yes. And, and thank goodness. And I think, you know, Disney's not still making Aladdin. Right. Right. And they're saying, listen, we made this at the time. It was not okay. Then it is not okay now, but we're not about to do a revisionist history Mm -hmm. on our legacy. I appreciate that. I I do. I appreciate that as a consumer. Yeah. And I think there's a point of acknowledgement that sometimes we just, that's all, like all I need for the tension to kind of release is that you acknowledge that this was bad because it's the lack of acknowledgement that becomes the, you know, the part that is the bit in our teeth that we can't let go of. Yeah. And I I did for me, I'm like, again, not to be a Disney apologist, but, (laughs) but I do think I was impressed by that phrase. It was not okay then. Yeah. Cause I think there could have been a lot of harm done with like, it was a different time. Right. Right. right? Like, like wrong is wrong. Mm-hmm. And like 1992 wasn't that long ago. So no, it really you wasn't. Know, we're not talking about like feudal England. <laughs> right. Um, you know? So I don't know. That's, that's my take on it. Also, like, I don't know. And I'm, I'm, I'm a super positive person, Julia. And I'm yes, usually I know. a glass that's, half full. That's glass why I enjoy your kind podcast. Of gal. Yeah. <laughs> So like, if anything, this present day critique of Aladdin, I still love Aladdin. Mm -hmm. I'm okay with that. 
And it's helped me to see other things in other children's media that I normally wouldn't have noticed mm. if I hadn't been a part of this conversation. And if I hadn't leaned into thinking, is Aladdin racist? And I thought, well, let me figure out for myself. Yeah. And learned about it and thought about what it might have felt like to be a kid who didn't look like me and talk like me and come from where I come from watching Aladdin. It's allowed me to look at other kids' media and other kids' books. Do you know how many bad guys in children's books look like a Middle Eastern caricature? A lot. A lot. Mm -hmm. A lot. I wouldn't have seen it until people started criticizing Aladdin. Yeah. Yeah. And and it's pretty overt in some other children's books, you know? Yeah. Like, and, and that allows me to do a better job as a parent. So I'm in a weird way. I'm grateful for Disney, yeah. you know, the, and I'm grateful for the people who are voicing these conversations. And some people are doing their PhDs in this stuff. I read mm -hmm. some like academic papers on the analysis of intersectionality in Aladdin, like bless yeah. let's do it. Like, that's why I'm, I'm grateful to be a millennial, you know, like show me what about my childhood was like, you know, a little problematic because mm -hmm. I'm raising my kids today and I'd rather have my eyes open than closed. Yeah. Cause it's better to be equipped to have those conversations. Like I had my child so young that there's so many things about his childhood that I'm just like, gosh, honey, I'm not apologizing per se. I just want you to know that I was a kid. And I didn't know better, <laughs> but I know better now. Like how Disney kind of has, we didn't know better then, but we know better now kind of tone. And I think with, um, for me this time around watching Aladdin, I think the part that I latched onto the most was just the discrepancy or just the, the, the poverty, you know, of it all. Mm -hmm. You have all these people who are struggling so hard and like, it's like he stole a loaf of bread. And I know that that is like, um, a trope because I think it's also the part of the premise in Les Mis as well. Like stealing a loaf of bread is the common ethical question that we pose to people, you know, when you're starving it, when you're starving and is it yeah. wrong and how do you handle it? And I, and I think that for me, it's, it, the having spent so many years in situations where it was like, Oh, if I didn't have family, we would have been living out of our car. If I didn't mm. have family, we wouldn't have had meals. And so watching it this time and just how awful and mean mm -hmm. they are mm -hmm. to him for having taken a loaf of bread or when Jasmine hands the fruit to the little kid, mm -hmm. you know, those types of things. And just so just the, it's, it's treated as in the same vein as if you murdered someone mm -hmm. and it is not the same thing. Mm -hmm. And now we know all these studies too, about how poverty affects mental health and, you know, the increase in all those things as well. It's not the conversation we're here for, but I just really latched onto that this time, like calling him a street urchin and telling him he's essentially trash and like all these things, because now for me, I'm like, I'm past the point where everyone's sort of whitewashed because like we're millennials. That was everything. <laughs> like, I've just accepted it. And now I'm like, give me, you know, my rom-coms with Michael B. Jordan, please. I'm ready. Oh my gosh. Yeah. <laughs> um, but I, I, realized that a lot of the Disney movies that I didn't, that I loved in my childhood, I didn't share with my child. Oh. And I think, and I don't know if it's because I was overwhelmed with parenting or if it was because I just didn't want to have to like explain stuff. Yeah. I mean, I think the other thing is that like, can you really apply 
I guess, yeah, the answer is yes, you can and you should <laughs> and you should. But but again, like the Stockholm syndrome and the Beauty and the Beast thing, I'm like, it's a movie for kids. Everybody. Yeah. <laughs> but these things to the to the red and yellow, black and white, like children's fair, like, you know, nursery rhyme straight songs, up song we sing in church. OK, these, <laughs> these things stick, right? Mm-hmm. These things stick. And this this content for children, fairy tales in the past were designed as a way to keep our kids aware of morality yes keep our kids aware of the social construct keep our kids in line you tell a story about a street urchin who almost gets his hand cut off for stealing a loaf of bread what's the morality there Mm -hmm. don't steal right right and so much of content for kids has evolved quite a lot but you know if we're going to be so nostalgic about these stories without you know inspecting them for the the deeper, you know, cost and trade-off on, on our kids subconscious, then I think that we, I don't know. I think, I think there has to be a fine line is it's like, mm-hmm. I love beauty and the beast as much as anybody else. I think that it's my favorite Disney movie of, you know, for sure of all time. So when people say like, Oh, the Stockholm syndrome, I'm like, Oh yeah. But man, like the memories I have, <laughs> The memories I had. And, and I guess, I guess maybe what I'll say is, is that's all we had to consume. Right. And we're able to critically think about it now as adults, our kids, my kids have, and your son mm-hmm. have a ton more content to consume than we could have ever dreamt of. And they'll do the same thing. Yeah. They'll probably and- critically appraise that, you know, Ryan was eight years old and his mom and dad made YouTube videos with him until they were bajillionaires. Yeah. Right. And you know, what's Ryan's bio biography going to read in a, maybe it'll be fine. I don't know. Yeah. Who knows? But, but you know, it's just, it's just the, the nature of hindsight. It is. And I think because you and I are in a similar situation where we're constantly learning and growing and reevaluating, we are better equipped than our parents ever were to have those deeper conversations with our children and to, and to be able to walk them through it. So I tell my son all the time, I don't have all the answers, but let's like walk through it together so Mm -hmm. we can figure it out together. Like I'm still learning too. And it's funny because he'll tease me sometimes about stuff. And I'm just like, you have to remember 1993 wasn't a great time. I mean, it was (laughs) because we were children, but it also wasn't when it comes to like the lessons that we were learning that were more than just that we didn't realize we were learning, right? Like, yes, we're getting the lesson of good and evil, but then as we grow, what was the takeaway that we didn't realize we took away? And that's the whole point of the show, right? It's like, what was the takeaway we didn't realize we took away? <laughs> yeah. Let's talk yeah. about it. There are so many theories floating around TikTok. I don't know how much time we spend on TikTok, Aaron, but I spend way too much time on TikTok. (laughs) So there are these theories on TikTok about what Aladdin should have wished for. But the one theory that I latched onto is that Aladdin, rather than changing the unjust system that forces Jasmine to choose whomever she wishes to marry, he wishes to be a prince. Therefore, rather than changing the system that disadvantages him, he is choosing to rise within the system that disadvantages 
him. Mm-hmm. So leading TikTok users to wonder, is the overall message of conforming to overcome a message that we've internalized? <laughs> so I'm gonna like I'm gonna jump in first because normally I'm like, guest, you go, but re-watching it today, Jasmine literally says. Cause he's her husband, her dad's like, Hey, you have to be married by your next birthday, which is in three days. And she's yeah. like, and he's like, it's the law. And she says, the <laughs> law is wrong. And I was like, yeah, that's right. That's my girl. The law is wrong. But, but since I've done all the, all the TikTok watching and then rewatching the movie, I'm in this place now, Aaron, where I'm like, I don't know if at the time we understood anything other than find a way to fit into the oppressive system, which is wow. a, is such a big concept. Like, I don't know if there was any, any conversation around it. Like, you know, we had the civil rights movement, which was pushing for equality, but there is a clear delineation in history about like, that's something separate than like a children's story, right? Like, mm-hmm the dream in America is to rise above. Yeah. Fit in. So you can become, well, now Jeff Bezos, (laughs) (laughs) which no, no, thank you. But did we see that cover of Vanity Fair? I'm so mad about the (laughs) caption copy, Aaron. You have no idea. I was like, Rage. Well, that's probably where I saw it. I'm like thinking like, oh, I'm on the pop culture, but it's only because I follow you that I yeah. literally anything. I think that if we want to think about this as being a bubble just about to burst, yeah, then it's definitely like really stretching the, you know, um, the surface tension of that bubble for sure. Mm-hmm. I think that is it capitalist propaganda I guess. I mean, I think if you want to take an academic point of view on it, and you certainly can, but I think the more important thing is that rags to riches is a really foundational aspect of all storytelling. Right. And really good storytelling has, here's this person, here's their point of view, and then something happened to them, and then something happened to them, and then something happened to them. And then this huge thing happened and then they live happily ever after. So rags to riches just fits so well into that natural storytelling rhythm that is hundreds of years older than 99 yeah. than Aladdin in 1992, right? right. You know, um it's Dickensian. It's mm-hmm. it's Shakespeare. It's like it's very old storytelling. So in terms of when I say the bubble's about to burst, I think that certainly the bubble of that rags to riches story was probably just about to burst. And I was trying to find some like key cultural moments in 1992. And I think we were still in a recession. We, there was a recession in 92, you know, Clinton gets elected. Mm -hmm. There's a bunch of stuff, you know, South Africa is like, you know, there's, there's just like, um, is starting, I think to end apartheid, like there's race riots in LA Mm -hmm. there's, there's um the the question of abortion is like back in the media there's the Dahmer murders are on trial I think there's you know there's a number of different things that are happening in the cultural zeitgeist was this capitalistic propaganda I don't think so because I don't think that the capitalist machine was really like driving culture the way it drives culture now like, I agree. We were not being sold to in 1992 the way we're being sold to today. 
Right. And I, I a hundred percent agree. Cause to go back to my story of walking into the Disney store and it wasn't what it is today. Like it is overwhelming to walk into a Disney store today. There's so much, the reach of Disney is so far. It yeah. blows my mind. And when I think about just class, you know, like we talked about the classic fairy tales from before, and it is such a It's a staple in storytelling, rags to riches, to your mm -hmm. point, that I don't know if we would have ever questioned it unless TikTok came around, right? And all these other kids are now saying things like this, because now I'm like thinking about it more and more. And I'm like, yeah, you could take that take on Aladdin. You really can. But we didn't know we were being oppressed in certain ways. That is not a thing that like we, we thought about yeah. that we were aware of or thought about, especially in the nineties, because everything was supposed to get better with like 1992 yeah. is a huge year for cultural change. Clinton was supposed to make everything better. We finally had proof that, you know, police brutality existed beyond the sixties. Right. right? That's like, right. So, so to say like, oh, it's capitalistic propaganda yeah, in 2023, if this movie came out today, sure. Mm. But in 1992, it was very much like we are in a classic storytelling structure. Yeah, this is this is give exactly the people what they want. Give the people what they want. Um, I mean, would I talk to my kid about you know what are your thoughts on him trying to be a prince rather than breaking the system? Maybe. Yeah, that's how we roll in this house. <laughs> but, but I mean, I mean, yeah. like, yeah. how often do you catch me on the show saying something like, please just send a handsome fella to pay my bills. Like, <laughs> I'm tired. <laughs> I mean, I think if you want to go back to Jasmine, I do think there's more critique on Jasmine than I think there is. People really love to go into Belle and the Stockholm syndrome thing. Yeah. But I see, I see Belle as a more of an agent of her own destiny than Jasmine like she's has very little airtime what airtime she does is weakly defending right. what she wants to have happen in her own life and then at the end of the movie basically she gets rescued by aladdin and the thing that convinces her father to change the law is because he knows she'll be taken care of by this hero so he's like well now that i know you're going to be taken care of by aladdin who's a hero I guess I can change the law. Right. There's no agency of Jasmine in the story whatsoever. She has no choices. She's really just fixated on choosing the right guy. Right. She rejects, she rejects all these other guys. And I do think that that's a storyline that we can be more critical of, even especially in 1992, whereby the only means of escape is choosing the right man, is a system of oppression on women that absolutely should have been criticized in, mm -hmm. in the nineties. Mm -hmm. Like that's just was not how we were rolling in the nineties. That was not the, the structural, you know, choices that were available to women at the time. It's, it's kind of lazy story writing mm -hmm. in a lot of ways, like the whole Jasmine storyline, like three days until your birthday. Well, she never has a friggin' birthday. She doesn't I even mean get her cake at the end. I was like, no. isn't it day four when they're fucking flying around the world? <laughs> like, I'm don't count through it. Time. Don't <laughs> don't count through it. There's a lot of 
essentially her body is her only source of power. You never see that in Beauty and the Beast Mm-mm. ever. Mm-mm. Even in The Little Mermaid, and The Little Mermaid is as scantily clad as Jasmine is, but it's really not about her physical body. It's about right. her voice. Jasmine seduces Aladdin. Even when she gives orders as the princess, she, she tries to order. She's like, release this young man by order of the princess. Mm-hmm. And they're like, oh, sorry, princess. You're going to have to take that up with Jafar, the grand vizier who outranks you apparently. Right. And then at the end, she seduces Jafar, which even almost screws everything up because Aladdin's like, you know, because they're, you know, I don't know. But so, so really she's a poorly written two-dimensional female oppressed. She's a female oppressed character. I mm-hmm. think like the, the, the the structures of of what little she's given in the storyline are deeply disappointing to me yeah because the strongest moment that she has is when she says that the law is wrong that's the best line yeah and, and raja then, her amazing yeah, tiger raja is the best I and then more raja mm-hmm. to piggyback on to what you were saying too about the love aspect you know when she asks um I think there's a point in the film when she's like, why do you, you know, tell me why you love me or whatever. And all Aladdin can do is list physical features. Oh, and then he says punctual. Yeah. 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 I was like, "Mm, listen, I love being told I'm pretty. I love it. I love hearing it. I love it when people comment on my physical appearance in a positive and empowering way. But if that's all you can give me and you want to be my (laughs) boyfriend, we've got a problem. (laughs) I think I think no I don't know why I'm defending defending Aladdin I don't know why I'm defending Aladdin I do think that he says to the genie she's smart she's funny she kind of calls him on his bs right they spend that moment in the market you do really see like I think there's like the first act of the movie really gets forgotten as the plot increases and as the tensions with Jafar become the main storyline you forget a lot of the really sweet beginnings of right. the love story between the two of them. Like he, it's like love at first sight for him. And she kind of falls, he kind of rescues her. And there's this really funny thing where she goes along with him. Mm-hmm. Like that's like some of Jasmine's best moments is when she calls the, she, he says, oh, she thinks the monkey is the Sultan. Right. And she starts to like bow and, and it's really like Jasmine gets some like comedic, you know, forget Robin Williams isn't even on the scene yet. And Jasmine's right. got me cracking up, you know, she says hello to the um, camel. He's like, time to go to the doctor, sister. And she's <laughs> like, oh, hello, doctor. You know, like my siblings and I, we, we would like repeat that. Yeah. Par- parrot that and thought, think we were hilarious pretending to be Jasmine seeing the camel doctor. So I don't know um, where I was going with that. That's a scene that I really love. And, um, but it, it really like, it gets completely kind of, and I guess that's just storytelling, right? But once you meet the genie, it really becomes a vehicle for Robin Williams. Right, right. Yeah, it's like they forgot the other- as it should be, mm-hmm. as it should be. I mean, listen, did my attention span wander when I didn't have scenes with Robin Williams? Yeah, it did. <laughs> he carries the back half of the movie. I loved the genie. I had a shirt for the longest time. Oh, I did want to say about this thing about the genie shirt is today my kids would have seen the genie shirt. They would have wanted the genie shirt. It would, they would have been exposed to the genie shirt at least a hundred times consciously or subconsciously before we ever set foot in the Disney store. Right. 
in the 90s you had to go to the disney store maybe you got a mail catalog i don't know maybe yeah Mm -hmm. but to experience what you were being sold you had to literally be physically in the store yeah now you know i'm shocked at some of the things my kids have had sold to them that they have like no interest or they're like not even remotely the target consumer for but they're consuming this you know media either by youtube ads Mm -hmm. or you know placed content or um sponsored content or Mm -hmm. whatever it may be you know uh, pop-up ads like there's all kinds of advertising happening for these kids all the time and i think that that in and of itself you know there's such a like purity of you going into the disney store and choosing a t-shirt you know because i feel like for my kids that tactile experience of shopping is so much of their attention in the attention Mm -hmm. economy is already is already spoken for before we even set foot in a store yeah i struggle with it erin yeah, because I there are times where I'm like, I just need to know. I want to feel it. I want to touch it. I want to see it. Mm. Like these, and it's hard. And I'm living in a community where um we don't have a ton of shops for people who aren't teenagers. Oh, <laughs> Target. Oh, Target. Like I went to the mall the other day years ago. Gap is gone. Like there's just so many like spaces now where it's just like I don't want to shop online. I can't physically handle that because what you know there's so many variables involved and I love the experience of walking into a store and seeing something I've never seen before Mm -hmm. or like discovering new things like that is something that I really enjoy and that it's just not even in Target you can't really do that anymore Mm. you know and it's like Marshall's I don't know it's just so different now I and I know oh I'm so old because I'm like oh it was so great in the 90s it wasn't don't get me wrong there were (laughs) moments that were not great um but there's but there is an element of just the connectivity and community that no longer exists in the Mm. same way like I love my digital community I'm not Mm. saying that I just I went to a poetry reading night the other night. It was still fucking fantastic being in a room of people who yeah. were trying. Like, yeah. it was so yeah. good to just be in that experience. And I don't know, I'm kind of like, I wouldn't mind it if the internet fell. I mean, I'd miss my friends in other time zones, but like. Do you feel like it's kind of going back a little bit, though? I, so, feel, like, I feel like people are reverting back to that in-person connection and that commu- that real, like, tangible, tactile community building yeah, I, I'm shocked with how, but then I'm also not shocked with how much people are responding to the in-person reading salons that I'm hosting mm. next year in 2024. Yeah, I thought it would be so hard to get people to come out of the house and to do mm-hmm. things. And people are like, no, tell me where, where can I buy tickets? I'm like, they're not on sale yet. Um, and I think because, and I think, I think in my observation in my corner of the world I think COVID really did exacerbate the whole like need for community because we Mm -hmm. felt it so hard then Mm -hmm. and now people are really trying to like find that craving I don't mind getting on zoom I'm happy to do it but I know people who are like absolutely not give me an in-person thing Mm. because that you know, because before COVID, we all kind of sometimes hopped on Zoom. We had our teams meetings. We did all yeah. the things. Yeah, yeah. But being forced to do it for so for everything, I think people just I think that really burnt us all out on technology. Mm. 
I don't know. I think it's also this sort of desire to simplify. Yeah, that too. Um, And to have less things mediating between you and your relationships. And I think that's one of the things where people want to be in person because there are a lot of relationships that are mediated through this, through the Mm -hmm. phone or through Mm -hmm. the screen. And, you know, there is something about like when we talk, we take turns talking on Zoom. Mm -hmm. If we were in person, it would be really organic. We would basically be talking over one another. You probably experienced that at your poetry reading. And I don't know. I felt like that lights up different parts of my brain Yeah, in a way that it fills me up emotionally um, and feels really, really good. But Mm -hmm. I I agree. Both things are good. Like we get to live in these worlds again. Like I am really grateful to be a millennial. I do really Mm -hmm. feel like I've got the best of it all. I'm I don't feel like I'm cynical and broken. I know millennials kind of have that we're sort of like crusty alcoholics, grumpy <laughs> in the corner, but I don't feel that way. I feel empowered. I, I got to buy my own house, mm-hmm. you know, and, um, and I had a childhood that was free of the internet mm-hmm. and um, a lot more rights and opportunities than my mom or my mom's mom. I don't mm-hmm. know, like maybe that's just me again, being like glass half full, but I, I, well, really but I understand that, like, that. We're coming yeah. from a really good generational cohort. Mm-hmm. I think there's something to having that balance that can help be mm-hmm. a bridge and help um, with understanding. Cause it is, there are times when, you know, our, our elders in our family do get a little crotchety and it's like, well, you know, <laughs> it's not 1960 calm down I mean we don't say it like that but (laughs) but it's you know it's like being able to draw the parallels to their experience to my child's experience I think is something that I you know we can do pretty well with Mm -hmm. um, the older generation because I do hear a lot of like oh these kids today which is exactly what they said about us 30 years ago (laughs) right these kids these kids don't know hard work I know. Like, you know, it's like, no, we just don't want to be exploited anymore. Like, I understand the 20 year olds who are like, please don't exploit us. Like, please. <laughs> like, we took it because we didn't know any better in 2001. But like, I know, but we could also make a living off of min- like, maybe That's, not minimum wage, but no, like- but truly, though, Aaron, because sorry to cut you off. I apologize. No, please. I had my son and his best friend. We all went to this festival in October. It's their birthday gift every year. And they were sort of talking about frustrations with like, gosh, everything is so expensive at the festival. Da, da, da. And I said to them, I said, I am so sorry that the world is like that. This is the world that you have in the sense of like, you can't even afford to buy food at the festival because it's so mm. expensive. Like I made seven seventy five before minimum wage was seven seventy five at my part time job and could still afford to have a social life in yeah. two thousand two. That's right. That that is not true for my child. Like that's right. The financial struggle is real for yeah. those for that yeah. those kids right now. Yeah, yeah. He can't even afford his own car insurance on a part time job right now. Mm-hmm. Mm-hmm. I have to yeah. like pick up the slack. Yeah, it's crazy. Mm-hmm. sorry to take yeah. that tangent I cut you off no so no but right. I mean like you know in terms of like TikTok pointing out the capitalist propaganda like I think yeah for sure you didn't grow up watching Aladdin and you watch it today you're like what is this rags to riches pull your bootstraps up and marry the princess and get the law changed like what <laughs> what what in the heck <laughs> what are you trying to teach me here you know and and of course like I think 
there is a version of the story where Jasmine's like, yeah, good for you, Aladdin. I'm going to go get my PhD. Mm-hmm. Like, get out of here. My mom used to always, when I was a little girl, I was obsessed with Cinderella. And she used to read the end of Cinderella. I don't know if I've told you this already. She used to read the end of Cinderella and change it to say, what? You're going to marry me because of my shoe size? I don't think so. And she went off and left the prince and went and got her master's degree. And that's how my mom would always tell the story. And I was like, you know, five, six, seven, eight. And I would flip out because I had a very intense princess complex because of the be- beauty and the beast because of Aladdin because of Aladdin beauty and the beast and the little mermaid I was enraged that my mom would do this but she did it pretty much every time she would read it to me until I taught myself to read and I was like screw you mom <laughs> I'm gonna read this you know happily ever after yeah um I love but- an H-E-A don't get me I just all I want <laughs> that's all I want is an H-E-A <laughs> just kidding we'll get it we'll get it I think it's interesting too to take a modern day lens and look at something that is exists within our lifetime that we grew up with. Like it's one thing to do it to like a Marilyn Monroe movie that, yeah. you know, is, you know, 60, 70 years old. It's another to do it to something where it's like, no, 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 we grew up with that. What are you talking about? Like we're still young. What? Yeah. Like I literally have conscious memories of that. Yeah. Yeah. Gosh, Aaron, thank you so much for being here and chatting and indulging in this conversation. I appreciate you so much. Oh, likewise. Like it's a total joy to just like do a deep dive on this kind of thing. Like I cannot recommend it enough, whether you're going to hop on a podcast with a friend or not, you know, like take your favorite movie and go down the dive and like read the Wikipedia page of your favorite animated classic and figure out the things that inspired the artists and the art that was like used as reference and the critiques of it today. And, you know, just like, think about these things. It's totally, it's a joyful experience. It's not quite as like scary as saying like, Oh, if I look too hard at that, it'll be ruined. I don't really feel that way after this. So thanks for creating that space for me to, uh, to um, talk about Aladdin. Yeah. And I think sometimes too, it's like, we don't need to ruin the art if we find Mm. out the truth of things Mm -hmm. I mean sure yeah it's gonna you know there's shades of gray within that statement obviously Mm -hmm. but I think Mm -hmm. that it is one of those things where we can't just blanket cancel we have to like look at something on a case-by-case situation totally evaluate how we feel can you please share with our friends where they can find you if they want to keep (laughs) up with you Yes, friends. So um, you can find me typically on Instagram. I'm at medium.lady over there. And I call myself medium lady because I'm not a young lady, but I'm not an old lady. I'm a yes. medium lady. Um, sometimes people ask me if I'm a psychic. I am not a psychic, but <laughs> I can you see medium. how <laughs> the use of the word medium might lead you astray. But I am into all the feels and all the woo-woo things. Um, I'm here to help burnt out moms and millennials rediscover themselves and reconnect to their identities whether we're doing that through a deep dive on an animated movie or talking about books or talking about uh you know how to kind of get out of your own way um my podcast is medium lady talks you can find it wherever you listen to podcasts and i have a spin-off podcast much like you do julia washington <laughs> called medium lady reads which is co-hosted with my amazing co-host jillian o'keefe where we talk all things books and the public library so you can find me uh at those places and i hope you will and if you do uh come and say hi in my dms 
And we'll link all those things too. And friends, if Jillian's name sounds familiar, she was on our spinoff show, Jolly Pops Book Club. We talked about every summer after, and that was a fun chat. And Aaron will be back on our Jelly Pops Book Club podcast to talk about... Mm-hmm. I see the cover. Leave the world behind. Thank you. Leave the oh world my behind. Gosh. I'm like, the, the cover just flashed before my eyes and I couldn't remember the name. And I'm very excited. I'm very excited to do the the side-by-side comparison because I've already made, started making notes about the book based on the trailer. <laughs> I rewatched the trailer after re-listening to the book and I just like, I have so many thoughts and opinions and I'm trying not to be salty about it because yeah. I love, love this book. And I, there are immediate discrepancies in the trailer. Uh-huh. Usually you don't get that with a book. Ad- I'm diver. I'm digressing. Yeah. Usually you don't get that with a book adaptation, like that the discrepancies are that obvious in a trailer, but they're right there blatantly and cannot it's be ignored. It's in your face. It's in it's your face. Mr. Mahershala Ali. I'm so sorry. Um, yes, you are a beautiful man. You are the he's wrong a age. Beautiful <laughs> man. He is the wrong age um so yeah so 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 I can't wait to, to dive into that one with you it's gonna yeah. be a good time I'm excited I'm like oh there's gonna be I mean can you block three hours because I have so many notes already and I haven't watched I will do the my movie best. yet <laughs> I will do my best I might have to leave the house but I will I'm do my best I'm just teasing I'm just teasing <laughs> um <laughs> while I was editing I had a flash of a memory I saw this movie either in the Briggsmore Movie Theater or maybe it was festival. I really can't remember. But the point is, is I unlocked the childhood memory of seeing it in the theater. I remember being scared during the Cave of Wonders scene when it was crashing down on Aladdin and Apu. I want to thank my guest Aaron one more time for joining me today. What a great conversation. And be sure to check out her podcast and you can find her on Instagram. Everything's linked in this in the show notes. Pop Culture Makes Me Jealous is written and edited by me, your host. And if you're new around here, I am a biracial writer and podcast host based in California. When I'm not facilitating the Jelly Pops Book Club or recording this podcast or pouring candles or painting greeting cards, I'm trying to convince my dog to snuggle. If you can't get enough of this show, you can join us on Patreon, patreon.com slash Julia Washington. There you'll get one bonus episode a month, a bi-monthly happy social hour where we discuss current pop culture topics and you get access to our back catalog of episodes that have in episode bonus content. Just click the studio audience tier. It's December, so I want to wish you all health and happiness this season. While the world may be crumbling down before us, we can still build community, connect with loved ones, and find joy in the small things. This is one of my favorite times of year. I love being cozy with twinkle light and bottle brush trees taking over every surface of my home. Friends, thanks for tuning in, y'all. Until next time. Until next time.